You're listening to a podcast from 702. The Naked Scientist. Whoop, whoop. We've got the Naked Scientist every Monday just after 2.30. We talk science, so put on your lab coats, put on your glasses, and get ready to get down and dirty with uh, Bunsen burners and test tubes and um, what else is there? Hello, Chris. Hello. How are you? I'm super. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Thank you very much. Yeah, just kind of deflated after news of a new variant of interest in South Africa. So, ah, just when you think you're making progress. <laughs> I had much the same reaction. But the thing is, we, we need to prepare ourselves for this because this is a moving target and it's going to carry on grumbling on doing this sort of thing. And, and actually, I look upon this not as a negative, but as a positive because if we know about it, we can track it, we can try to do something about it, we can look at its impact. It's when things creep up on us unawares and we sleepwalk into a situation that often they end up far worse, or far far worse. What? Worse is not a real word. Yes. Um, I think in some respects it kind of says we should take some comfort from the fact that the system is working. We are finding these things, we are detecting them, we are tracking them. And and if we know about something, then we're one step closer to solving the problem. Much mm. better to be in that position than, than a situation of, of blissful ignorance for much longer. Mm. Mm. So uh, in light of that, then, what is the role of vaccination or vaccinating um, and having herd immunity in order to slow down the rate of new variants or to even prevent it altogether? Well, when we first went into this, the whole idea was we need a vaccine which will stop the most dramatic presentation of coronavirus, which is severe disease and people losing their lives. Now, the vaccines do do that and they do it stupendously well, about 95% effectiveness at preventing severe disease. But a secondary aim was can we use vaccines to just stop this thing spreading at all? That has been less well uh, achieved. Because what we're seeing is although the vaccines do cut down the rate of transmission, they don't completely prevent infection. Mm. So what we're seeing is that people who uh, have been vaccinated are much less likely to develop severe disease, but they may nevertheless still go on to catch the infection. Maybe maybe half to a third of people might catch the infection despite vaccination. And it may well be that more variants emerge along the way that mean that that's going to happen more often. That means that those people can potentially transmit the infection onto other people. And that makes the whole concept of herd immunity that much harder. Because with herd immunity, what you're trying to do, and this is a sound epidemiological principle that we've been using for decades. The idea of this is that you have such a high level of of immunity in a population that the chances of a susceptible person bumping into an infectious person is so remote Mm. that you just can't sustain a chain of transmission through the population. So things like infectious diseases disappear. The problem is that with a vaccine where maybe half to a third of people can still catch the infection and be infectious at least for a while, it makes it that much harder to use a vaccine to prevent transmission and stamp out an infection. So we have two choices. One, we live with the fact that we're still going to get cases, but then luckily not turning into consequences once people have been vaccinated. Or, and this is probably a longer term aim, we tool up our vaccines and we go for what some researchers are dubbing COVID vaccine 2.0, 
which is we make even more effective vaccines that can achieve what the present generation of vaccines can't, which is they stop transmission as well as stopping severe disease. And if we're able to do that, then we have a chance of being able to completely suppress the ability of the thing to spread through a population that's been well vaccinated. But at the moment, we're not able to do that. So we're going for get as many vulnerable people vaccinated as possible as a priority mm. and stop people becoming severely unwell. And then secondarily, vaccinate as many people as possible to try to reduce the risk of transmission through the population as much as possible so that people who don't respond to the vaccines or people who lose their immunity having been vaccinated, both of, of which are possible, those are protected secondarily by lower levels of virus circulation in society. Mm, mm. Thank you for explaining that because Pango Lineage C12 is here. Is in South Africa, and there'll be more, of course, in the afternoon with uh, John Pullman between 3 and 6. But for this afternoon, with uh, the head of virology at Cambridge University, that's Dr. Chris Smith, our naked scientist, we're taking your science-related questions. You can send them to us um, via WhatsApp, or we prefer your calls, actually. We prefer to hear you express the question yourself on 011-883-0702. So give us a call now and speak to the naked scientist. Andrew, you're first up. You're in Hamans Good afternoon, Andrew. Hello, uh, Zanya. Dr. Chris, I just want to find out if um, white stars are hotter than yellow stars. And um, do white stars always come to an end in supernovas? And I listen on the radio. Thank you very much, Andrew. Are white stars hotter than yellow stars? Uh, I think it's a brilliant question, but I didn't catch the last bit about supernovas. Can you tell me that bit too? And why do white stars end in supernovas? Right. Stars come in different shapes and sizes. Uh, there's Rod Stewart, there's Tina Turner, <laughs> there's Justin, and then there are the ones up in the sky that you can see that, that shine light on the universe. Didn't and there are billions. That. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, there are billions upon billions. There's 100 billion galaxies and there's probably 100 billion stars in those galaxies. But when we look at those stars, they are not all made equal. Some are big and some are small. The bigger stars, they're more massive, have more material in them. If they're more massive, they have more gravity. If they have more gravity, they can compress their fuel and run their nuclear reaction faster so they burn and produce more energy more quickly. That means they are hotter, and the hotter a star is, the bluer its light is. So we, we've got a spectrum of stars, and at one end are stars which are burning very fiercely, very hot, very bright indeed, very massive stars. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got cooler stars that are down towards the, the red end of the spectrum, or even in some cases failed stars called brown dwarfs, which are stars that didn't quite form. They weren't quite big enough to get going. And so really the, the intensity or heat of a star goes with its size, but with size also comes another phenomenon, which is the ability to end its life in a supernova. Because if a star ages and gets very, very hot, it burns out its core of nuclear fuel quite quickly. That means that the pressure that's pushing this enormous star outwards and inflating it from within by having a very high temperature begins to fail. Mm. And that means that there's a lot of material all pressing in not enough pressure pushing out and the star at some critical point then collapses in on itself. As it collapses in on itself, it then 
reignites the fusion fire that was producing that very vigorous reaction before. And so the star then intensifies its action again to such an extent that it blows itself to smithereens, and that is a supernova. Wow. And when that happens, it then showers the universe with all kinds of interesting uh, products of nuclear fusion, and that's where, in fact, all of the uh, fancy massive elements which are out there in the universe that we, we find here on Earth have come from. We've got all these amazing elements on Earth because other stars have gone through their life cycle, blown themselves to smithereens and spewed the stuff out into space. Mm. And some of it lands up and helped to make us. But smaller stars don't have enough mass to do that. So stars like our sun, our sun is not sufficiently big that it will go through a supernova it will end its life in a slightly different way, which is that as it gets older, and it's about 5 billion years old at the moment, it will probably live for about 10 billion years. Once it gets into the latter phase of its life, it will puff up and become what's called a red giant. And it will become literally giant because it will be so big that the outer edge of the star will reach where Mars is already mm. today. So in other words, it will eat all of the rocky worlds which are our innermost four planets that being Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. So we'll have an absolutely enormous red giant at the centre of the um, solar system. And the next phase after that is what's called a white dwarf, where it sort of it blows off all its fuel and shrinks back to this stellar cinder, which is just glowing faintly in the night sky, but is a fraction of its original size. And that's called a white dwarf. And so our sun is too small to blast itself to pieces. And so colour is important. The bluer and whiter a star, the hotter, the more massive and the more fiercely it burns and the shorter its lifetime and more likely to end in a, a supernova explosion and actually give rise to a black hole. Bigger stars, they get they inflate, get very big and then shrink down to a, a, a white dwarf. What does that mean for Earth if the star, if our uh, sun became a red giant, if it puffs up and does what you said it will do? Does that mean well, What that means is we've got about four billion years to find a way to leave the planet. <laughs> uh, we've not destroyed ourselves and our planet in the meantime mm. but the, the reality is that long before that happens life will become intolerable on the planet as the star blows up expands puffs up and begins to consume the inner inner parts of the solar system then it would mean that the environment that we enjoy here on earth would not at all exist anymore and so the earth would become uninhabitable long before the sun actually ate it but we, we would be consumed by the sun. So by then, hopefully in four billion years' time, we will have found a way to leave the planet behind and find a way to live on another planet or build spacecraft, which are sufficiently uh, nice that we don't mind coasting around the universe on those for a while. Right. Um, let's take a break and then we'll come back to the lines, Chris. So fascinating. I didn't think that extinction could come that way, but it's in five billion years' time. Let's take a break and more with the Naked Scientist and your calls. 702 The Naked Scientist And let's go straight to the lines Reboni, you're calling from Kensington You have a question for the Naked Scientist this afternoon Hi Hi, hi Hi Dr. Chris, this is Reboni speaking I've got a quick question Why does the tiger or leopard pee or poo smell like hot buttered popcorn? That's my question Where did you encounter tiger, leopard, pee or poo? At a game reserve with a friend a couple of years ago, in the middle of the bush, we smelled popcorn. And we were like, what's going on here? And of course, the, the ranger indicated or yes. made us aware of, you know, that point. 
and I never really got to get to the size of it. So I'll be more than happy to hear the size part of it. And I've always wanted to, to call, but somehow I yes. never got through. <laughs> and what a fascinating question. Thank you, Riboni. <laughs> um, so why, Chris, buttered popcorn? Can you repeat the question for me? Because the line broke up. And oh, I, I see. It. She says, while on a game drive, uh, they were out there in the bush with the game ranger and uh, they started smelling oh, just a waft of uh, buttered popcorn in the air. And they asked the ranger and the ranger said, that's how they know that there is a tiger or a leopard in the vicinity. In South Africa would be a leopard. Um, and that they pee and poo smells like pop, like that smell of buttered popcorn. So she wants to know wow. why. <laughs> well, I I don't know because I've never come across that phenomenon. But if it smells of something, it must have various chemicals being secreted and excreted from the body in that body product. Uh, not all things that uh, that that smell one way are identical chemicals, but it's very likely that some of them will be. So there may well be something which is in the urine or which is in the feces which has that chemical characteristic that gives popcorn its smell i don't know the answer mm. i'd need to look this but if obviously south africa some of the best game wardens <laughs> and some of the most people on earth in that country it must be possible that someone listening to this will know straight away so if you do know please call in and tell us and, and put me out of my misery otherwise i'll have this as homework and i will ask my vet friends whether <laughs> they've come across this the biochemical explanation is for next time Fantastic. It has been torturing her for years and it shall continue. We've got Magnano calling from Pretoria now. Hi, Magnano. Hi, good day, guys. Good day. Um, I've got, yes, I've got a question in connection with viruses or even in uh, Corona. Mm. Um, is, is there any correlation or relationship uh, between the population boom of the earth and the occurrence of, of viruses? And if there is data, are there any studies to predict um, whether or not we're going to have sort of like a, a big event in terms of viruses upcoming that might threaten to wipe us out? Bigger you know, than this. Uh, Big, bigger than this yeah, one, Mariano. Yeah. Okay. Thank yes, you. Are there any studies on models? All right. Okay. Thank you. Is there a relationship between the population explosion we've seen and um, the, the threat and the advent of new viruses or diseases? very strong relationship and scientists have known for a long time that there are a number of factors that provoke what we call emerging infection. 75% of new infections in humans come from the wild. They're so-called zoonoses. They are jumps between animal viruses and humans. And where they come from is when a group of humans encounter a group of animals in the wild, and the opportunity exists for the infection to jump the species barrier. Mm. Now, there are a number of reasons why that could happen. Either the environment changes, so uh, in some way the animals move closer to the people, or the weather changes, so there could be some kind of uh, change against the environment that means that, that people and animals converge, or the host species changes and the host animals perhaps spread an infection into another group of animals that then have interactions with humans or uh, there's there's actually some kind of change in the virus itself that can mean it can access new populations but most of the time it really does come down to one thing and that is our behavior 
And the, the more people there are on Earth, the more opportunities there are for people to invade nature and encounter wild animals. And when we invade a new part of the world, what, what do we tend to do? Well, we build houses, we uh, produce lots and lots of other people, we uh, produce transport routes and ways to move ourselves around very quickly. And often we rob wild animals of their environment, so they're forced to invade ours, what we judge to be ours now. And the consequence is this very close proximity between people and, and animals. And that jump uh, is then between the animal viruses and humans or animal infections as humans is facilitated. And we've seen this happen many, many times with diseases that occur in the past. Really good examples of this include a, a virus called Nipah virus that was was documented but had never caused problems in humans and in say Malaysia lots and lots of pig farms were built all over tropical rainforest because people didn't want a pig farm right next door to where they were living so you go into the tropics and you, you knock down some forest and you build your pig farm and some orchards because then you can grow your fruits keep your pigs and you don't cause a problem for nearby residents lots of farmers then began to develop in this outbreak really severe symptoms of this uh, encephalitic, you know, brain swelling illness. There was a high mortality rate. And it turned out that what was happening when they investigated was that the orchards were attracting fruit bats, which were then partially eating the fruit, dropping partially eaten bits of fruit into the pig pens, contaminated with bat saliva, bat urine, and bat feces. The pigs were eating the m contaminated fruit. They were catching this infection from the bats. And because there were lots of pigs, they were spreading it among the pigs. And the farmers that had close contact with the pigs then caught the infection from the pigs. They got it and and they, they then had severe infection with it. So in other words, if you've got lots of human population and that human population have close contact through our activity with virgin rainforests, other environments where there are wild animals that have their infections that wouldn't normally come up close to humans, there is a chance for infections to jump. And what makes that more more likely to happen? The more of us there are. So the more that you see population and population explosion, the more likely you are for the initiation of these things. And the more urbanization, which is again down to population, the more likely we are to see rapid onward transmission and amplification of an outbreak. And that's why Ebola was such a problem in West Africa in the last sort of decade, because there, there was a, a strong relationship. And scientists at the University of Oxford uh, published a paper in the journal eLife about five or six years ago on this, where they showed that in areas where Ebola first jumped out of bats, got into people and caused big outbreaks, it was in areas where there have been the greatest population explosions. And, and in the hotspots, there was a 500% increase in human population. So, yes, there's a really strong relationship. Yes, we know this is uh, a risk. And we also know that um, China, for example, has had a big population explosion hitherto and was the hotspot for coronaviruses jumping from animals into humans. Where people are really worried about next is the next place that's, that's destined to have a really big population explosion, and that's some countries in the African continent, which, which means they're likely also to be at risk of, of a higher likelihood of these sorts of jumps and pandemic viruses and other infections emerging. So this is why we need a surveillance system. We need to keep a really close eye on this. And we also need to educate people about the risks of overpopulation, over-urbanization, encroachment on the natural world because that does, at the end of it, lead to these sorts of things happening. 
Mm, what a comprehensive answer. We'll save everything else for next week on that apocalyptic diseased note, Chris. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you very much. You've got still a few calls, uh, but we'll have to bank them for next time. Thank you so much. So I'll be be looking into popcorn-scented urine for next week. Yes. (laughs) Some homework for our naked scientists. Till next week. Bye-bye.